Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education, part of the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Haber, an educational consultant and researcher working at the intersection of pedagogy and technology in K-12, higher ed, and workforce education. And this podcast will bring you authors working at the cutting edge of educational innovation. While it might seem like we've been talking about disruptive innovation for as long as we talked about innovation, when people refer to the concept of disruption, they are channeling Clayton Christensen, a Harvard Business School professor and founder of the Clayton Christensen Center, who sadly passed away earlier this year. Christensen's theory of disruptive innovation has been applied to nearly every field, including education. And the person who's written the most on the topic is my guest today, Michael Horn, author of Disrupting Class, and his new book we'll be talking about, Choosing College. Welcome, Michael. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. Oh, it's great to have you here. So, uh, before we go into choosing college, can you talk about your background and how you ended up having so much say about educational innovation? Yeah, absolutely. For better or worse, right? But uh, it was interesting, actually, as you were introducing yourself, it was occurring to me that you and I are one of the few people that cross between the K-12 higher ed and workforce learning sectors and sort of moves, you know, try to move seamlessly between the three. My own background in this space really got jumpstarted with working with Clay Christensen when he and I teamed up to co-author the book that became Disrupting Class uh, on the heels of me graduating from Harvard Business School and having taken his class on innovating in organizations. And it's a class that just totally transformed how I saw the entire world. And we then applied these frameworks to helping public schools in the K-12 arena initially innovate. And then midway through, uh, as you mentioned, we founded this, this organization, the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, nonprofit think tank, where I led the education team for about a decade. And got to do a number of research projects applying the ideas in K-12, but then increasingly higher education as I moved through it. Uh, and then in 2015, I left full-time and went to a group called the Entangled Group, which was an education venture studio where we both were incubating and building new for-profit and not-for-profit organizations to help the education ecosystem move to supporting the knowledge economy of our times rather than the industrial economy for which so many of the structures were built. And just recently in May, we announced that we have been acquired by Guild Education, which is a company that unlocks employee benefits, major employers to help upskill and reskill the American workforce, 84 million of whom need ongoing reskilling and upskilling, and many of whom need uh, credentials and degrees and so forth to advance in their careers. And so I'm now perched there, if you will. So I've, I've worked in, in this, the workforce learning and higher ed was more entangled and Christensen was all of the above, I guess, but, but I continue to write and, and work across these different arenas with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and the educators themselves. Okay, a lot to disrupt there. For better or worse. And, and speaking of disruption, you spoken before about how people often use disruption and disruption theory incorrectly when they describe industries undergoing technology-driven change. Can you explain what disruption theory is and isn't? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked the question because it is so misused and misapplied. And it's something that if you read the Wall Street Journal or honestly, any business plan of 90% of the startups in Silicon Valley, I think they all say we're going to disrupt this industry or do this and disrupt that. And they've used it very cavalierly in sort of the conventional English of, of disrupt, if you will. But when Clayton Christensen coined the term he meant something very specific, which was an innovation that would enter a marketplace characterized by things that were complicated, expensive, deeply inaccessible, and, and therefore could only serve a limited few. And this new innovation that would enter would disrupt that trajectory of improvement against those characteristics and offer something that was far more affordable, convenient, 
accessible, simple, such that it could serve many, many people that didn't have the expertise or wealth to be able to access the leading products and services of the time. And then the other thing about the disruptive innovation or this new innovation that would enter that was much simpler and so forth was that they tend to be more primitive as well. And so from the standpoint of those who are leading a given market or or sector of the economy or, or education, as it were, they look at it and they say, that's not all that attractive. It's not all that good. It can't serve the people we serve today. And so they tend to ignore it. And really disruption advances through a very simple game theory calculation, which is basically the innovation keeps getting better and the leading products and services that are complicated and expensive continue to have the motivation to ignore it for long periods of time until honestly, the disruptive innovation gets good enough and people who previously used the traditional products and services, they migrate out to the disruptive innovation because they're thrilled by something that's now good enough, more affordable, convenient, accessible. And that's when we say a full disruption, if you will, has occurred when that process has played itself out. But it's not sort of like a head-on attack or even direct competition of any sort. It's really serving people who are not served by the leading products and services, starting there with a value product proposition that's attractive and then getting better and better over time. And the archetypal example of this was the microcomputer replacing mini and mainframe computers, right? That's exactly right. For for those that may be familiar by its more casual name, the microcomputer or personal computer or desktop computer came into the market initially as simply a toy for hobbyists and children who could not afford the large mainframe or mini computers that cost anywhere from a quarter million dollars to $2 million to own and buy. And they were delighted with this primitive thing that initially didn't have screens, certainly could not do word processing or anything of the sort, but it was better than their alternative, nothing at all, cost only a couple thousand dollars. And it got better and better and better over time. And then by the late 80s, 1989 to be exact, it was good enough that a lot of the things that you previously had to do in mainframe or mini computers, you could now do on your desktop with these micro or personal computers. And so the volume really collapsed in that mainframe and mini computer markets and personal computers were ascendant. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean that mainframes and mini computers don't exist still. They they do and they're more powerful than desktop computers. But the point is the volume right in that market has collapsed and most of us do computing now not even on desktop and microcomputers, but laptops and then honestly mobile phones, uh, smartphones are disruptive relative to those devices. And so we see this process continue to play itself out. Okay, so that's an example of disruption theory as it's actually meant. And, and you apply the theory correctly in your 2008 book. Uh, you mentioned Disrupting Class. You wrote with Clayton Christensen and Curtis Johnson. That, that was an enormously influential book, especially among those of us working in K-12. Can you describe some of the non-intuitive discoveries and claims you made in that book? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because I remember our first interaction was during the MOOC craze, I think, when massive open online courses were advancing. And you made the point, if memory serves correctly, that not clear that they were disruptive, right? Um, and that everyone was throwing that term around, and uh, and which I think is quite right, uh, or your observation at the time was quite right. But what's interesting about disrupting class was we concluded a few things. One, the non-consumption was not of schooling in the United States, at least. That is, everyone has access to what feels feels like a free public education. We know it's not, in fact, free. Taxpayers are financing it. But for the individual, right, making any given decision, it appears to be free. 
And so there's no non-consumption, if you will, no lack of access to schooling for the most part across American K-12 education. And so the disruption that we posited could occur would actually be at the classroom level. And it would start with areas where schools would love to be able to offer something, but couldn't for some reason. So it might be advanced placement courses. There's 30, I think now 36 some odd AP courses, and most schools can only offer a small fraction of them, but there are certainly students who would like access. And so they can offer online learning experiences to make those accessible to those populations or credit recovery, where students fail a course, they need to get those credits to recover and be able to graduate. Schools are able to offer this in an online or blended format. And that we would start to see online learning, which we explained was potentially disruptive to the traditional in-person classroom, plant itself in all these areas of non-consumption and, and, and gain ascendancy such that digital learning, we, we asserted in the book by 2019, which was this past fall, would account for 50% of all high school courses in some form or fashion. We never thought people would become virtual students in the majority, but that it would account for a much more significant part of the delivery of education. And, and of course, that was a prediction made before the current moment of, of COVID-19. Now, I'll, I'll just say one other thing, which is the reason we were interested in this phenomenon is, A, if disruption is a thing, digital learning was, in our mind, clearly going to grow regardless because of that force. And I think it largely did. The other thing that we were hopeful was that as digital learning grew, it would give us an opportunity to rethink the precepts of our education system, which is built on a zero-sum game that teaches to the average and is modeled after factories. And to see it as a positive sum game where we can develop the human potential of all individuals and personalize the learning experiences in far more engaging ways so that all students can really build their passions, discover who they are and succeed in life and very different model for it. And, and I think I would say in some ways, the book was incredibly prescient about the opportunity and what could come. It was also prescient about some of the challenges that would occur. And what I think it didn't give enough conversation to in retrospect was that because this was a disruption within a system as opposed to a disruption of a system, that a lot of the barriers that exist in policy and, and the like would be extremely significant. And, and we made the, that point in the book, but I don't think we hit it home enough that it would be challenged to really change the way the system itself operated unless we really figured out ways to tackle the fundamental policy conditions and expectations in which these disruptions grew. Interesting. I definitely want to get back to K-12 later in our conversation, but moving on to higher ed, your, your, your latest book, Choosing College from Wiley, it addresses higher education, although it is based on a different theory than disruption theory, one developed by your co-author, Bob Bazamoista. Yeah, Bob, uh, Bob Mesta. Yeah, that's correct. Bob Mesta. So can you tell us a little bit about jobs to be done? Yeah, absolutely. So Jobs to be Done is a theory that Bob developed in partnership with Clay in the mid-90s uh, when, when Bob was studying at the Harvard Business School. He and Clay struck up a lifelong partnership and mentorship relationship. But the basic observation was that people don't hire products and services in their lives for their own sake. They're, they're instead trying to make progress in some sort of moment of struggle or struggling circumstance. And they pull different things into their lives, products, services, even people, honestly, to help help them make progress in that moment of struggle. And that if you can identify the struggling circumstance, the trade-offs that people are willing to make, the pushes and pulls that cause them to change, and then the habits and anxieties that honestly hold them back from making a change, then you can really understand the root cause of what 
causes people to consume or make changes in their lives and design around that as opposed to so much of marketing and product design, which is very, it's sort of needs-based or, or persona-based or built on these observed characteristics that on average, because I'm a white male with two kids, I will do X, when in fact, it doesn't understand a situation in my life that would compel me to need or not need that product or service, if that makes sense. And so it's very focused on movement, progress, and circumstance uh, that makes one thing look more or less attractive in a given situation. Maybe a quick example, uh, Jonathan, if, if it's useful, which is, and there's many wonderful stories on this, but but one of them is a lot of people for a long time thought that Milky Ways and Snickers bars would be competitors with each other because they're both candy bars. They're made by M&M, Mars, and, and, and so forth. And so you just say, well, what's the percent demographic most likely to buy a Snickers? What's the percent you know, of different demographics most likely to buy a Milky Way? And let's sort of try to understand the persona and then build advertising and the product around those different personas you know, based on demographics and, and, and things of that nature. But the reality you realize is that when you dig into it from a jobs to be done perspective, is that people buy Snickers bars when they're hungry, when they, they're on the go, they don't have time to stop for a meal, and they need a Snickers because it really satisfies. And literally all that marketing language that we know now, and the design of the Snickers bar itself came out of this observation, whereas Milky Ways, it turned out, were really purchased in moments of sort of needing consolation or a release of some sort, and were more likely to be competitive with things like ice cream, <laughs> for example. And understanding that helps you really understand what motivates or what the causal mechanism, right, is that causes someone to buy a Snickers versus a Milky Way. And it helps you realize, like, sometimes in your life, you feel like a Milky Way, and sometimes in your life, you feel like a Snickers bar, but they don't compete with each other. It's really, it, it's a theory similar to disruption that's very focused on causality. But but I would say disruption is very focused on supply side of causality. Like why do firms do what they do in response to something new? And jobs to be done is very demand side focused. What causes you as an individual to make a change in your life? So if we could stick with a sweet shop for a minute, I think uh, an example you used in your book that I thought was illustrative was the notion of not buying a milkshake, but hiring a milkshake to do a specific job. Can you just quickly explain that one? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was a fast food company in the mid 1990s, and I'll, I'll try to be quick, but they knew the average demographic most likely to buy a milkshake, which was working parents in their mid 30s and 40s. And they tried, you know, they did focus groups with them, tried to improve the sale as they made changes based on the on average feedback that they would get, and, and sales didn't budge a bit. And then they hired Bob actually to just come into the back of the restaurant and take notes for 18 hours a day for several weeks on end. But anytime someone came in to buy a milkshake, and what they realized, was it was hired during two times during the day. The first was during the early morning rush hour commute. And the job to be done in essence was I'm not hungry yet, but I know if I don't eat something, I'll be starving. And I want something to keep me occupied during this very boring 30 minute drudgery of a commute I have every morning. And so the milkshake did that job of help me handle the rush hour commute far better than its competitors, which were not just other milkshakes, but bagels and, and donuts and bananas and coffee and the like. And in the afternoon, the job to be done was really help me feel like a patient 
and loving parent <laughs> as you would come into the restaurant with your kid and, and they'd sort of buy the equivalent of a happy meal together and your child would basically say, oh, dad, can't I have a milkshake? And, and you would buy it essentially out of guilt <laughs> uh, and trying to feel like a loving parent who had said no so many times to your child over the past week. It was sort of a moment to make you feel very good and relate uh, to your child. But because of those two very different reasons for which you hire a milkshake, the design and the product actually has to be very different to accommodate those two different jobs to be done. Okay. And uh, presuming uh, the entire listening audience hasn't rushed off to the fridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> switch to a more applicable example for uh, this conversation. So you research this. Uh, what are the jobs to be done by students considering where or even whether to go to college? Yeah. So it was interesting. No, nothing we expected. The first one was what we call help me get into my best school. So these are students who are running the rat race, if you will, right? To get in the best for its own sake. It's it's very little about what will I do once I'm in college and, and much more about the effort to be the best because I've put in the work and so forth. And they want the classic college experience they've been led to expect in many cases. The second job to be done we found was what we call help me do what's expected of me. And these were students who were basically, they were going because someone else in their lives said that this is something important you ought to do, but it was not intrinsically motivated. And what was interesting about this one was 74% of our data set, they dropped out or transferred uh, when they enrolled to do what someone else wanted them to do in essence. And, and that someone else could be their parents, it could be school counselor, it could be their peers, or this just sense that society expects me to do this. The third one we found what we called help me get away. So these were students who were running away from something in their lives that was pretty bad. And college was something socially acceptable that they could say that they were doing to escape that. And But they were not motivated by the college experience itself. It was just an excuse to escape. And again, really bad outcomes here because while it was a great way to escape, if you're staring down four years and a lot of debt, uh, it may not be the commitment you've bargained for. And then the, th the fourth job we found is what we call help me step it up. And this corresponded just to put in the demographics for a moment, much more to adult learners. So people who were working often and had families in many cases, and they were basically looking around and they're like, this isn't me what I'm doing right now. I can't keep doing this. People are depending on me or there's some sort of milestone coming up that means that I got to do better and I, I got to step it up and it's now or never. And they would hire education to help them make progress. And then the last job we found is what we called help me extend myself. So in some ways, I refer to this as the lifelong learning job, but it's basically people who say like, I've always had a yearning to be more, do more, learn more, or challenge myself or, or, or finish what I've started. And now I'm able to create the time and the money so that I can pursue what, what has been important to me. And these people were eminently satisfied with the experience, e even honestly, if they didn't graduate, because it was all sort of upside uh, to them and very little risk from their perspective. So uh, I've got one kid in college and another who's going through the process now. And as you probably know, nobody talks like this. Nobody uses the terminology you just used to describe their decision-making process. Now, I know you and, and Bob, your co-author, used a unique form of research to gather the information from your book. One, I saw the two of you demonstrate at a conference earlier this year, and this was meant to sort of get at people's real motivations. Uh, so can you describe the interrogation techniques that expose uh, what you kind of write about as the real reason students choose college? 
Yeah, interrogation is exactly right because it's based on criminal uh, interviewing techniques, actually. And it's basically what, what we want to do is not ask people why they're making a decision because people lie when you ask them that. Not not because they're bad people, but in many cases, they don't know what the underlying reasons are. They don't know what the trade-offs that they're willing to make are. Or maybe they don't want to confess the truth because they feel like oh, that doesn't sound good or no one else goes for that reason or whatever else. And so what we really want to do is watch what people do, not what they say they would like to do, right? So in the milkshake example, it was it's noteworthy that Bob watched people buy milkshakes for 18 hours a day, right? To figure out the circumstances that they were in to understand causality there. And, and because we can't watch people actually make the college decision over however many years it might take uh, as a process, what we do is we use an interviewing technique to basically recreate a mini documentary of their choosing process. And you try to do uh, all sorts of techniques to basically push on the language that they wrap around it to really understand what do they actually mean when they say a college was beautiful? Like what what does that actually, what, what does beautiful mean, right? To you and try to really dig deeper and and use interrogation techniques, as I said, to, to get at this, at, at this truth and see what they actually did as opposed to just sort of their bland reflections on, on why they did it. The interesting thing I will say is that the names we've given helped me get into my best school, helped me do what's expected of me, all those names. Those aren't the language that the students use, but the language underlying it, the pushes and the pulls, like, so I can have the classic experience, so I can reinvent myself with new people, so I can live in a beautiful place away from home. Like that sort of language that students use to describe their decision-making process, that actually is the real language that students use much more so than what counselors or higher ed institutions typically do use. And I think one of the really cool things about the technique is that it, it gives a window into like, what are the real pushes and pulls that will resonate with students themselves? And how do you use that language both to design a better experience, but then to talk to students in their terms and in language that they will actually understand as opposed to the language that or education sort of imposes uh, on the college uh, process? And so your research process was really going through these in-depth interrogation style interviews, and then you coded their responses and came up with a taxonomy yeah. that led to your five jobs? Yeah, that's exactly right. I should have clarified one other thing, which is that the, the approach is hypothesis seeking, right? It's not, we don't start with a hypothesis of what are the reasons. We instead come in and just to observe. And, and, and frankly, the less information the primary interviewer has about the process, the better, because you can ask really dumb questions that turn out to be really important in unearthing this truth. And then what we do, so at least a couple people listen in on the interviews. And after each interview, we sort of argue about what we heard. And you start to categorize what were the real forces that pushed and pulled them toward making a decision. And importantly, we're only talking to people who have actually made a decision to switch because we want to understand what's the movie, if you will, that actually causes this to occur. And then you basically do uh, a nearest neighbor math um, to start to, it, it's a kind of cluster analysis, but not built around the individual. It's to understand which stories are more or less alike from each other and essentially to group the like stories with each other and understand what are the pushes and pulls that are most unique to that cluster of story to really understand what defines. It's, its shape of why people make the choices that they do. And so that's really what we're, we're after is trying to understand what makes certain stories uh, in common together and what makes stories different from each other. And then in retrospect, after this massive coding and then clustering effort, then we start to argue over language about how we actually give a name to a job to be done. 
know, sounds more complicated and a little more interesting than watching people buy milkshakes for uh, 18 <laughs> hours a day. <laughs> well, it's an exhausting, you know, Bob tends to do these in sprints when he does the workout of the rewired group where he basically commits to one question over a week time. And he'll do maybe two or three days of interviews and then two or three days of analysis. It's a very interesting process of, of coming and uh, to, to some sort of truth. And then once you see it, it's very hard to unsee the world this way. It's, it's very neat because you A, realize that you can't make assumptions about what a job to be done is until you've done the work of actually capturing these stories. And then once you've done it in a particular field, you start seeing everything through that lens and as sort of a first cut of the world. And then honestly, all the personas and things like that, th those things can be helpful, but you layer them underneath this fundamental understanding of causality first. I know the year has been applied to all kinds of things before you apply it to higher education. So Correct. Yeah. Some. Having made these discoveries and come up with these sort of five jobs, how would you say that what you've unearthed should inform students and families who are making decisions about higher education? Depending, obviously, on which job you're in depends on the implications of how you should choose and things to watch out for in many ways. And that's how the book is organized, as you know, is, is really through that advice. It's really a, a self-help book to help you navigate these decisions and help parents talk in the language of students to offer the advice that will be helpful in, in avoiding certain bad outcomes and, and optimizing other ones. As macro pieces of advice, I'll say three big conclusions that jumped out to us, one of which will resonate deeply with you because your son did exactly this, which is that many more students ought to be taking a gap year than do, was our conclusion. And it's obviously a particularly relevant conclusion right now with so many questions questions over what will the fall semester at college look like, but it was so clear that so many students come into college without a deep intrinsic motivation for being there or sense of purpose or why. I think there are cases where that can work, but a lot of times you're going to get hit with adversity. And if you don't have sort of some deep reason for being there, it can very easily knock you off course and say, this isn't worth it, or you can accrue a lot of debt without degree. And those students who had spent some time on a gap year, which it's a terrible name, by the way, for, for the activity, but really a year of discovery where they embark on several different kinds of projects, they work through different things, and they start to come to know themselves, their strengths, their, their weaknesses, what excites them, how they want to contribute to the world and the like. And then they can come roaring into college with a lot more energy and passion. They just do a lot better. And so I think it's something that we ought to be creating pathways so that many more students can sort of have these uh, opportunities. And, and, and maybe college is in some cases reshaping the freshman year to make that avenue available to more students. W one more piece of advice, which is really for students, don't feel like you have to look like everyone else. <laughs> taking the road less traveled, differentiating yourself, figuring out how you are unique, I think is unbelievably important. And it's how you create value in life more generally. But I think it can be more true to people's DNA of as opposed to everyone competing to be the best, why don't you compete to be the most unique you you can be and and really be true to your own strengths and weaknesses and, and, and your context? That would be the other sort of macro advice I might pull out. Okay, well, I might just use that for my, with my 17-year-old. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> you mentioned schools potentially kind of being welcoming or even facilitating gap years, but how might your results speak generally to institutions of higher education? Yeah, there's profound design implications for higher ed institutions. And, and interestingly enough, that's where the research started, which was we wanted to help higher ed institutions innovate. It, it just became the case that the stories we felt were so compelling in their own right. And, and as you said, the language so different that we thought, let's turn this into resources for students and parents. But for institutions, I think what they have to realize is that you can't be all things to all people. And, and you cannot 
expect a program or one type of institution to serve all five jobs well. And you have to be very intentional about who is actually coming to us. Why are they actually coming to us? What job do we actually serve? And optimize around that one. And two, choose what you su- you're going to suck at as the other side of the coin, right? And and be very intentional about it. And, you know, Southern New Hampshire University, which is now, uh, I believe, the largest university in, in terms of students served in the United States and one of the largest in the world, they use this line of thinking to redesign their, their online offering because they realized the students there were hiring them to help them step it up. They tended to be adult learners in their 30s. And every part of their processes were misfit for this job to be done, where people are prioritizing convenience and speed to degree and and speed of admission and things like that. And all their traditional processes around the traditional brick and mortar campus, which were built uh, for juniors in high school who, you know, it was fine if it took a month for you to tell them about their financial aid package. Like it just did not work with the adult learner who, who needed to escape trouble now or, you know, is now or never. You needed to get back to this person within seconds, right? And then you needed to be able to optimize the course taking process so that there wasn't a lot of meandering or time wasting, but really that it was an efficient use of time. And you had to put life success coaches in place to help people navigate as they worked part-time potentially while taking the program. And so all of these changes result once you understand the job to be done that you're really well suited to deliver on. And you got to make some hard choices and be super realistic about Hey, you know, maybe we wish we were serving students who were in the quote unquote, help me get into my best school job, for example, but that's not who's actually coming to our doors. So how do we build process and priorities around what they need? Know who you are. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, like so many higher ed institutions, they just want to model themselves after Harvard or the traditional academic model of what has been Harvard, right? And one, there's only a limited number of institutions that can afford <laughs> that sort of an expensive model. And so, but two, it's out of step with what a large number of people need. And so I guess the other piece of advice is there's a ton of non-consumption of people who need to make progress in their educational pathways and don't see great opportunities out there. So there's actually, you know, a lot of colleges and universities right now are hurting because The number of 18-year-olds who will go to college is shrinking. It's going to shrink particularly rapidly in certain regions starting in 2025. And so there's going to be a lot of challenges for institutions who've typically served that age demographic. But if they look at this through a prism of non-consumption, what I think that they'll see is that there's just a sea of opportunity to better serve people in lifelong learning needs and opportunities to help them make progress. And hopefully this is a playbook for them to be able to innovate against that. Getting back to everything, the technologies and policies related to online learning that you've been talking about for years have been implemented virtually overnight when coronavirus shut down the entire planet's residential education system. I know some people describe this as an unplanned opportunity that might accelerate innovation in K-12 and higher education, but you've been more circumspect when it comes to what this moment might mean. Can you talk about what you think has been happening in both K-12 and higher ed since the COVID shutdown? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, you've taken a lot of people who where the students were enrolled in face-to-face environments with processes and ways of teaching and relating and creating community, finely tuned for those locations with teachers who are trained in how to manage classes or how to give lectures or in the case of college, and they are a little different, but you know, in the case of college, not just the teaching models, but say residential experiences where 
there is a range of activities that are occurring that are really the magic of college that go far beyond the academics themselves. The opportunities for encounters and growth and extracurriculars and parties and all the rest, right? And what I think is so challenging is that within two-week period, we sent everyone home basically and said, okay, now you're doing online learning or remote learning, whatever you want to call it. And the students and families certainly were not prepared for this. This isn't what they wanted. They hadn't opted into it. There's a number of stresses and challenges with working parents on one end. And then teachers were not trained to offer these digital learning experiences. And as, as you know, better than almost anyone, online learning can offer, I would argue, a superior learning experience than an in-person one, to be sure. But it's not something you can create overnight, particularly with little training. It's much more of a team sport than traditional teaching in, in many ways. You need multiple faculty and, and instructional designers and support to really create a robust experience. And so what I think a lot of people have experienced in this move to online learning have been really terrible, crummy learning experiences. And I think it's going to leave a sour taste in many people's mouths. And so for sure, there will be pockets where it's been done really well and and teachers will take that back and they will innovate and will create more robust experiences. Or in higher ed, some people will now opt for the more affordable online degrees like a Western Governors University or Southern New Hampshire University. And so net-net, I think this is probably better for online learning on, on the whole. But I think for large segments of the population, the moment that this is done, that they can run back to their traditional ways of going to school, assuming that occurs, right? They're, they're longing and hankering for that. And the moment they get it back, I think they'll say, well, thank God that was done. We're not going to do that again. <laughs> and so I think there could be a little bit of a backlash. You know, right now we all acknowledge, oh my goodness, we need technology. I think there could be a little bit of a backlash depending on how fast we spring back to this. Now, the longer the pandemic causes us to keep brick and mortar schools closed, the more I think it benefits digital learning because I think people will have to start to innovate more and figure out how to do it better. But the shorter it is, I think the I, I think it's more damaging than than people might expect. It was interesting observing that even in high-performing school districts found that this was anecdotal information, but kids who were doing sort of just fine in brick and mortar were struggling. And some of it was the technology of remote learning, but it seemed like a lot of it is we've trained kids to be motivated extrinsically, to work inside highly structured environments. And certainly in public K-12, it seemed like a lot of the structure just went away and sort of kids had to motivate themselves. So it seems like there's going to be factors above and beyond pedagogy and technology to take on if we want to scale what we learn from this experience. Love the point you just made. It, it, it echoes very strongly the podcast that I started uh, with Diane Tavner in the wake of this called Class Disrupted. Folks want to check it out. But what we've been arguing in Class Disrupted is that in the questions we're now asking around, say, motivation, right, or the use of time in school or We'll, we'll tackle grading, one of your favorite subjects in, in a couple episodes, that you know this raises larger questions for how school is designed. And just to go to the motivation point, so much of school right now is, is basically we hold your hand, we don't let you choose, we manage, you know, the, the teacher manages when you get certain curriculum, you respond to these extrinsic carrots and sticks for why you do the work you do. And so then all of a sudden you take away so much of that structure and students are like, I don't want to do it or like my school's pass fail or everyone's getting an A. So why am I, you know, why am I going to do school, right? Like it, you just took away all those structures around it. Whereas I think the more interesting question is to start with, Okay, let's let's find areas of interest or not just interest based. I, I think sometimes that can be simplistic, but like 
paradoxes in the world or questions, right? That don't make sense. And let's dig into those for their own intrinsically interesting reason, and then build the knowledge and skills underlying sort of these problems or project questions and build learning there, which is much more intrinsically motivated and start to build the habits of success in learners where they're able to self-direct themselves, where they're able to guide their learning, make choices, work with adults to get the right resources and, and the like, and really as opposed to the experience so many parents have had of nagging their kids to do stuff over the last several weeks. Instead, the child is driving their own learning process because they it's not this extrinsic reward system, if you will, but it's, it's something much more intrinsic and deep to who they are. Thanks for mentioning your podcast. I was going to bring that up, but we'll include a link to that in the show notes. So. Anyway, I wanted to thank you so much for this wide-ranging conversation. It was really terrific talking to you. Well, I, look, I appreciate and appreciate all the great work uh, you do to help folks think their way through these uh, questions. So thank you. That was Michael Horn, author of Choosing College, published by Wiley. When today's guest talked about jobs to be done as an analysis tool for the demand side of the education equation, you could just as easily describe it as the human side of that equation, given the light that theory shines in how human beings really make decisions. The gap between the reasons we do things and the reasons we tell people we are doing them can be vast, and often the people we're keeping secrets from is ourselves. Human beings may be rational animals, but are also emotional and instinctive ones. Making matters more complex, we rational, emotional, instinctive creatures live within complex human networks of families, friends, schools, neighborhoods, and nations filled with people who have expectations of us just as we have of them. Ask any teacher, professor, academic administrator, or policymaker their top priorities, and nearly all of them will claim they want to help students become skilled, critical thinkers. But to truly think critically and well, we need to be aware of the rational and irrational, the brilliance and the biases occupying our outstanding but imperfect minds. So whether you're on a mission to reform education, change the world in some other meaningful way, or just live a productive and happy life, perhaps the first job to be done for all of us is to understand what is truly going on in our own heads. So happy metacognating, and I hope you'll join us next time here at New Books Network. 